Hey folks, this is To Know the Land, broadcasting from the treaty territories of the Mississauga of the Credit on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Maybe you're listening to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It's a show about our connections with the land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. My name is Byron, and today I wanted to share the first of many interviews to come. Well, to give a broader perspective, I'm going to be interviewing a bunch of people learning about how to take students outside and get them learning about the land by being with the land. These interviews will be specifically geared towards university university instructors, but it will be I'll be talking to a lot of different people, um, some professors, some who have not been professors. I've also added in an element of uh, looking at how do we do this work of getting in touch with the land base and teaching and instructing and learning about the land while supporting a anti-racist, decolonial, anti-colonial, reconciliatory kind of framework to teaching. How do we do this all together while bringing kids out onto the land? And I have to say, with ongoing genocide in Gaza, I have been so sad and heartbroken and and weeping and it's just been so hard and I feel so helpless from this perspective of where I'm at and where I where my positionality in the world which is strange I, I'm a I am a, a fairly able-bodied cis presenting white male and uh I still feel so overcome by grief and sadness. And part of me says, you know, oh, shut up, just get back to work, do whatever you got to do. And I I feel like so helpless and like I have no faith in government institutions. So how can I apply energy on, on that front? I don't, I don't, I just keep going back to those memories of the Iraq war when millions and millions of people from around the world took to the streets and nothing happened nothing changed and i i really feel like that same thing is happening now um especially when the situation is so far away so i don't know how to make impact i don't know how to do those things but this project of looking at how do we teach people here how do we teach students here young people here and adults to live in a better way with the land and to live in a way that deconstructs colonial mentalities and encourages relationship building with indigenous people and to let indigenous people's knowledge and, and skills lead the way. And how what can we do to support that? That kind of research for me feels tangible feels actionable and practical and that it may actually do something. And so for me, there's a lot of hope in this project where I may not feel much hope in a lot of ways. And I know I've, I've had people critique before that it's a privilege to not have hope. And I've, I could have a whole series of shows on what I feel about that. But for now, I present uh, some good conversation with a, a longtime friend, uh, Lisa Donahue. And Lisa Donahue has been working in the fields of, of nature connection, of getting people, starting with her kids, um, and I'm hundreds of others of getting, working to get them outside and teaching them about the land and how do we be in good relationship 
with the land, with each other, and develop uh, relationships that aren't founded on on the destruction of the land and aren't founded on violence. That I instead work towards uh, maybe justice is the right word. Maybe it's not. Um, but yeah, I'll let her speak for herself and y'all can take a listen. I really appreciated talking to her. It was so good. So nice. Yeah. This is Lisa Donahue. Can you introduce yourself and your work? I can. I can. Thank you. Uh, I'm Lisa Donahue. I'm a mother and grandmother living and working here on the land of the Arapaho, the Cheyenne and the Ute peoples. Uh, also uh, part of the um, Treaty of Fort Laramie, which was not honored, as many were not, uh, now called Boulder, Colorado, USA. My work uh, encompasses um, a couple of different roles, mainly uh, that is uh, chair of the board for the Guelph Outdoor School up in Guelph, Ontario, and uh, as part of the leadership service of the Nature Connection Network, which is, uh, for those of you who, who aren't familiar, it's a network of nature-based schools and programs um, across North America and a, and a handful of members uh, in Europe and uh, Australia. Amazing. And amongst other that, other than that, I'm sure there's a long list of, of work you've done previously that really influences and imparts a lot of knowledge. For, and probably I'm, I will get some of those things too through these questions. Yes, thank you. Um, I was wondering, how did the? I'm going to frame this question a little bit different for you. How did the ideas and concepts of nature-based education come into your life? That's a great question, and and the story is that. Um, I was living in Canada, raising a few children in a sort of traditional school environment and feeling um, a, a, a sense of what I thought was nostalgia that my children weren't growing up the way that I did. I grew up in mostly in cities sometimes suburbs, not a sort of rural or, or um, bucolic environment, but definitely with the freedom to roam and my own, um, I guess, innate uh, desire to be part of the natural world found me, whether it was sitting with ants on the, in the cracks in the sidewalks or climbing the one tree that was in our, our neighborhood next to the apartment building. Um, I grew up close to the Pacific Ocean. I spent a lot of time um, in the water and, and on the sand there. And like I said, it was this, it wasn't um, that anyone was guiding me. There was no sort of program for kids to bring us outdoors. It was just where we lived. Um, and I had that that sort of freedom. Raised by a single parent who was working, and so just being outdoors all the time was natural. Fast forward, you know, sort of thirty years, and I'm raising children in a in a very different environment, trying to give them the advantage of of the um, education system that I didn't have access to as a child. Um, as part of that, uh, the school that they were going to. Um, I'm being visited by a little house finch here at the feeder. I, um, uh, the school that they were going to happen to sit on 27 acres of ravine property, beautiful ravine property there in Toronto. And the, they hadn't used it for many years. Um, I, I was told there was a rabies epidemic sometime in the mid eighties and, um, parents and, and teachers got very nervous about exposing the kids to that. So they put up a big fence between the, the school campus and the, and the ravine. And so now when I'm showing up there in the uh, sort of 2009, I think it was, um, there was an attempt uh, to, to bring that area back into regular use. Um, 
and I was asked to be a part of that. There was a little task force that the uh, the the headmaster put together, and as part of that, I was gifted uh, a book called Last Child in the Woods uh, by Richard Loop, which uh, some folks are probably familiar with. And as I read that book, I had this sensation of, oh, that feeling that I was having that I thought was just nostalgia is not that. It's actually a real thing that's missing in the lives of not only my own children, but lots of children today. And it will have an impact on further generations if we're not working to address it. So that was my first sort of inkling that ah, that feeling that I'm having is a wider spread issue, problem. Um, and when I went to look for resources to try and reinforce this at the school, like we want to open this up, we want to make sure kids are uh, having access to this beautiful natural environment. Um, I was introduced to the work of some folks locally there who had dedicated uh, themselves to relationship building. This was different to outdoor education as I had understood it. We, They weren't just taking kids outdoors and teaching them the names of the plants and the animals. It wasn't, it was less of a naturalist, even though that was part of it, it was more relationship based. And that was something brand new for me. So that was the, that was the start of it. And then that has led to a lot of different things as far as I know, and I'm sure lots that I don't, but a lot of the capacities that I've known your role to be in has been um, more of a, like a guidance through organizations, uh, like on the board of the school where I work, um, you've worked with other organizations in the past in that sort of guidance role. Did you ever work with the kids one-on-one -on -one directly or has it mostly been organizing the the larger picture um i was very fortunate to be invited as a volunteer to work with uh kids programs um the one that we call oaks and acorns there at both outdoor school was my my initial introduction just on a program level and absolutely fell in love with that i really do believe that working with um, the youngest children and their parents or caregivers um, is that kind of sweet spot for nodal intervention. If we want to make change, uh, I, I think that's, um, that's the place to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to making change, this is a big question. How do you introduce anti-colonial or decolonial anti-racist ideas um to these spaces of nature connection how do we how, how do you do that in your work thank you I, I can say honestly that initially i didn't i wouldn't have thought of them as connected at all and i would say that that's because i was raised and conditioned in a white supremacist culture that didn't um, encourage me to think in those ways. Um, I can actually remember the moment when I read a description of a Western white supremacist worldview and I saw myself. And I would like to say that from that moment, I turned my attention to and tried to think critically about both the education and experience and privilege that I'd been uh, steeped in. But I would, I would say it's more of a stop and start, stop and start. Um, and that work continues until today. Um, what I, I, what I will say is that I've, um, I've looked to um, teachers and others who, that's their world, that's their life. Um, Anti-racist work, decolonial work. Um, I love the work of uh, Vanessa Andriotti, 
and uh, her description of, of the world that we've created, or, or as she calls it, modernity, being violent and unsustainable. If I hold that thought, <laughs> then I can think consistently, well, if we agree that this, what we've created is violent and unsustainable, how will we address that? How will we come back to something that is not? Um, and I do see the potential in nature-based schools and programs for creating a different world, mainly based on understanding interconnectedness and relationship. But it's a, if you can imagine that I had almost 60 years of living with one worldview and then was introduced to another, it's almost like taking off, you know, as the, as they say, the blinders. Um, yeah. So I, I do try to introduce it in every, everything that I do, but it's, a how, do, how do you do that? Because how do I do that? Yeah. That's, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. And I would say by, by asking questions, mm. Um, not not accepting that the way things are today are the way that they should be or that they always will be. Um, asking questions in particular about where things came from. If I'm introduced to um, a, a, a practice, for example, um, finding out the lineage of things. Also, an important part of my journey has been looking into my own lineage and understanding that I didn't just float in on the wind, mm -hmm. that I have roots, I have ancestors. I may not know them, but they're there. They're very real. Um, and doing a lot of um, internal work and reflection on who those people were. Who did I come from? I, I, I came from people who came came from a place and so reminding myself of that and 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 carrying that curiosity that I'm developing about my own lineage which I will say as part of my education and upbringing was completely cut off there was no curiosity there was no understanding of the people that we came from or the places that they came from um so I try to encourage that in uh, in in others whether I'm in program or just in conversation with folks out in the world. And it's not always met with curiosity and enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's met with discomfort. And so I'm learning to sort of sit, sit with that. Yeah, that, that was going to be the next question of, do you feel like the folks you work with already understand and come with experience and 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 a general disposition towards an anti-colonial anti-racist sort of worldview. I will I will say that it's a it's a it's a spectrum. Yeah. And some some definitely do and there are lots that um are so far ahead of anything that I'm uh, doing or understanding or learning and um and there are some who may be just beginning um, and I try to remember my beginner's mind. Like I said, I can remember the moment when I read mm -hmm. that description of a worldview uh, that has led to uh, the situation that we find ourselves in today that is violent and unsustainable. And so I have a lot of empathy. Um, and I try to um, remain in that space of... Um, understanding uh, a, a beginner's mind and what what was necessary for me to feel that I could do the learning and make the change mm -hmm. and try to provide that kind of environment for others as well. I'll, I'll make one thing clear. In my view, we need everyone. Yeah. We need everyone. There's 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 no world in which we can say, well, these people are going to do the right work and so so we're going to put our efforts behind them and the rest no we we absolutely need everyone 
Do you feel like in your work around uh, nature connection, um, can this work happen outside of outside? Can, or can it happen? Where does it have to happen? Can it happen in a rural setting? Does it, can it happen in an urban setting? Can it happen online? Can it happen? What are the contexts that we need to provide good situations for getting people connected with the land? Hmm. Uh, I will say yes. All of the above. Yeah. It can happen anywhere. I think we can bring that sensibility, that understanding of uh, the interconnectedness of all life to anything that we're doing. I've seen it um, in, in, you know, beautiful, what, what some folks call wilderness spaces. I've seen it in urban spaces. Um, I've seen it in a classroom, you know, children can, can uh, be inspired by and, and begin to understand things like natural cycles. Um, uh, something as simple as plants that are growing indoors or, you know, the, the, the hamster in a classroom can remind children and give them an opportunity to observe the cycles of life and, and, and be reminded of their own connection to that, their own cycle of life, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I wouldn't eliminate, I wouldn't say that there's any space in which this sensibility can't um, be fostered and, and grown. Yeah. I, w I would also, I, that brings to mind uh, an interview that happened a long time ago where I, I I asked a friend actually to call in, sent them some preliminary questions, some prompts, and they called in and they relayed their experience of how they continued their nature connection journey while they were in prison and uh, describing stealing sugar and laying it out for the ants that would come through their cell and looking out the window um, and looking at any birds that might fly by into the yard and really practicing identifying weeds and paying attention to the weeds that were growing up in the, in this boxy yard with no real view outside. It was more of like a, a, a box with no roof. And so, yeah, I think I, I, I agree that these things can happen in all sorts of settings. And sometimes those more, distant settings from what we might imagine as wilderness, maybe that's where it's got to happen the most. And, and, you know, maybe if, if it was like a prison and sometimes schools look a lot like prisons, but um, in, in those contexts, maybe that limiting factor of the walls and the concrete help us highlight and focus in on the small natural signs like, if there's only three dandelions in the yard, you're going to really get to know those dandelions and what a gift those dandelions would be. What great pals those ants would become that are walking through your cell. So, I love um, that you bring ants into this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're there. What great teachers. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think helps and supports uh, students in doing the work of recognizing the broad relationships on the land? I think in my experience, the, the sort of common um, nurturing factor as kids develop their own relationship with elements of the natural world is a supportive relationship with it can be an adult or it can be someone who's just a little bit ahead of them, you know, age-wise or on life's journey. Um, having having a person to um, to foster their own curiosity and uplift it and name it as important, I think, makes all the difference. 
you you your your example of of someone who's incarcerated finding those um little bits of life uh says to me that we have an innate um desire for that and I don't know the the individual that you're describing, but I'm imagining that they followed their own innate sort of longing to have a relationship with other forms of life. And if there had been someone there to foster and encourage and and pull on that curiosity, possibly um, an, an even greater impact. Oh, yeah. I love that. And I think it's such a simple thing that sometimes we overthink, you know, just to ask someone a question with like, I have an acorn on my desk and to ask someone about the shape of it or the color or where did it come from? You know, like those simple questions can do so much. And when we bring it to like a different levels of education, um, I don't want to make assumptions just because someone's in university that they know where an acorn comes from because they may not. But if they do, um, we can expand those questions. And likely if they're in a university, they may have access to new tools to answer some deeper questions too. And again, recognizing all these complex relationships in nature helps us recognize all the complex relationships between humans and the geopolitics of humans. Oh, Lisa, have you ever read Baptiste Morisot? Oh, I don't think so. Okay, he's this contemporary French philosopher who's really into tracking, but he talks about interspecies geopolitics and uh, how tracking helps us learn about the the interspecies geopolitics. How do animals set up boundaries? How do they set up... Um, or how do they navigate space together and fulfill their own needs while not too much impinging on others? Or what does that impingement look like? How does How is it different? And what can we learn from the ways that non-human animals do it or other than human animals have that? Great books. I just lent out a couple. But yeah, really, really neat books. So. If you ever get to look at it, I, I'm I've I've made a note of it. Thank you. I will definitely look that up. You're you're prompting me to just reflect on something that I think about a lot, which is the potential of people who do nature-based work uh, and their work in the world and the impact on the geopolitical mm. uh, uh, situation. When I think about the um, tracking expertise that's contained in this community, I think, okay, these are folks who are paying attention to all the signs. They um, have the potential to um, recognize and reflect on what else could be happening. Mm. Um, what's what's behind that? What's behind the, the the behaviors? Whether we're talking about human relations, which right now in the world we ought to be, um, and the uh, ecological impacts of of some of the geopolitical things that are happening. I, I so I I see a unique um, potential in some of this world. It, it, in I mean, tracking is one example. I'll I'll give one more example if that's all right. Yeah. And, and that is, um, you know, when I think about anti-racist or decolonial work in, in nature connection, I think about, well, what are the tools that we already have? What are the things that we already use that could be applied here? And I remember that one of the first um, practices or technologies that I was introduced to was um, listening for bird language. And one of the things that we were taught was to, um, if you're entering a space where you want to be able to observe wildlife in general, birds can be the um, the messengers, the informants. They can tell you where the other animals are, right, and what's happening in the, in the woods. So, so learning how to um, 
there were two things to minimize your zone of disturbance and maximize your zone of awareness. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I thought about that at the time, it was in what I would name today to be an extractive way, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, acting in this way will enable me to observe animals in the wild. I'm going to get something. I'm going to see something that I wouldn't ordinarily, I might even be able to touch something, you know, those, those sorts of um, mm -hmm. rewards for that kind of behavior. What I came to understand later was that that was an exercise in understanding my own impact. Mm. When I walk into a space, be it the woods, be it a room full of possibly mixed race or other lived experience people, I have an impact. My body, and later this was reinforced when I started to read the work of Resma Menicum and my grandmother's hands, my body carries intergenerational stuff that has an impact. When I enter a space, what before I've taken any action, said a word, it's felt, right? So if I can remember that technology of minimizing my zone of disturbance and maximizing my zone of awareness, that could be huge for how someone like me walks in the world. That's amazing. That's beautiful. I think I've made small inferences in that direction before, but never laid it out so clearly. So thank you. And I, 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 I'll have you know, I'm going to repeat that over and over again. I'll credit you, but I'm going to repeat that over and over again. Because there's so much in all the... I look all all the time to pre-colonial ways of being and how do we do that from European and when you're of European ancestry, when you've been white and cultured and how do we, how do we look for these things before? And I always go back to mythology and fairy tales and stuff like that. And so many fairy tales, people are learning lessons all the time from the language of the birds you know, I just read one last night. It's an old Russian story where this uh, young peasant is trying to, he wants the opportunity to go save a princess, but he doesn't know what to do. So he goes and sits under a tree until two crows come over and they start talking about where the princess is. And so he's listening to the birds for the answers he needs. And then he can go save the day. Right. So it's like to just pay attention to his zone of disturbance to minimize it and just to pay attention and to broaden his zone of awareness helps him move forward in the world and, and save the proverbial day, you know, so it's just like what you're saying. So, yeah, I, I yeah. sorry, no, I was going to change the subject. What do you say? I was going to say, you're reminding me of, um, stories and um, I think I'm remembering that you are also a fan of Martin Shaw. Yeah. The yeah. storyteller out of the West Country of England. And um, in one of his books, I think it was Scatterlings, he talks about the way that stories come from the land. Mm. And that they, and correct me if I'm misremembering here, but I think he described it as stories using a form of echolocation to find people maybe other beings to carry those stories is that mm. is that yeah accurate? yeah I, I think about that a lot and i think about the idea of introducing certainly children but also uh, people of any age to the idea of listening for stories mm -hmm. and song i think song and stories are the same. I think that they do come from the land. And so rather than someone like me teaching or, or telling, uh, not that there isn't value in, in, in retelling and sharing stories, but really encouraging others to listen for you, you, you named listening to the, to the crows in order to gain some wisdom to go and, and, and do what this, um, person felt they needed to do uh understanding that there's wisdom that will come from the place 
where we find ourselves. Mm. I just did an interview a uh, half hour before we're talking now. And I think I pressed stop record. It was the end of it. But um, we were talking about how so many instances where the the land is the teacher, the land is the teacher and all this. And we can see that over and over again. But I also recognize that with our amazing human capacity to decipher things in a multiplicity of ways, the land has been a teacher that's caused a lot of harm or not the land has been. The land has caused harm, but not in the same way that I'm getting at. What I mean is that people have used nature connection or a connection with the land base as a tool of, I think of nationalism. You know, this is our land. This is the land that uh, well, we all come from this, this motherland, this fatherland. And through that, we should be defending this space from outsiders. It creates xenophobia. How do we navigate? We, we've been talking about a lot of what good can come out of nature connection. Where do you see these potentials for harm? How much time do we have? As much as you need. We have 20 minutes. Let's go. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess I would start with the understanding, the historical context and understanding that the land that I'm here on and the land that you're on was in fact stolen. So if we can acknowledge that historical context, that it was stolen through violence and theft and genocide. Acknowledging that, um, recognizing that repair is needed, what that looks like is uh, unclear in, in this moment. Lots of people working really, really hard to address the need for that repair. But the acknowledgement is a start and we start with land acknowledgements, right? A lot of us begin our, our, our programs and activities by acknowledging we are here on the land of naming the indigenous peoples. Beyond that, what are we going to do about that? So, so when I think about um, the harm, the harm exists when there's no acknowledgement and there's no attempt to make repair. If we're just uh, going forth with with those blinders on, saying, "Well, I'm here now. I'm going to take what I need." from this land um, perpetuates the harm of the violence and theft that occurred, uh, is ongoing, I should say. Um, when I think about land and, and the potential for learning from the land in the ways that you and I just talked about, all of the good things that can come about, um, I understand that there are many ways in which huge swaths of the population are prevented from that, have been and still are prevented uh, from having that kind of access and that kind of relationship today. So, you know, there was, um, I came to, I, I moved to Canada um, just around the time when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was finishing their work. And I really appreciate uh, simply the, the name, truth and reconciliation. So I think if we can start with truth, then we can work towards reconciliation. And reconciliation, in my mind, means a, a rebalancing. Let's ensure that, um, that, that the needs are met for those who um, were taken from and there's there's a there in my mind there needs to be a huge space for the grief as well maybe even before the repair can take place so that truth and reconciliation along with grief 
um, I think is is the is the correct order of things, and we have examples of that from other parts of the world, and I think we we can in a in a small sort of fractilian way do that work on a daily basis with kids and adults in in programs like these. Did I answer that question? I think so. I think so. And and you took it to the next level by offering like maybe ways forward and and describing that folks are working on that, you know. And yeah. that's what that's what I need. That's what I want and that's what other people I'm sure are listening for. How do folks work to build relationships with uh, any local indigenous communities within this work? And have you seen examples of this? Have you seen barriers to this work? Because I think that's fundamental. I think you agree that that's fundamental to, to this work. But how do we do that? Thank you. Um, I can't say with any, you know, I can't give a prescription for that. I can say that in my own experience, um, learning more about and, and uh, I've spoken about living in Canada for a time and now I'm here in, in in what's now called Colorado so getting to know first of all whose land I'm on who are the indigenous people who stewarded this land for multiple thousands of years and who are still here today so doing my own learning around who those people are and then uh, finding ways to um to find out what's real and present for them in this in this moment, um, lots of um, opportunities uh, within uh, tribal nations to come and see, you know, uh, what they're offering to to uh, the general public to non-native folks. Um, those are some ways to to begin to understand the culture, maybe a little bit of the language and the, and the history before I would even sort of dream about introducing myself and, and asking to be in relationship. It's a little bit of a, of a, um, I don't want to say a courtship uh, that romanticizes it too much, but um, because in, and for myself, there's been a lack of relationship and a lack of understanding i'm trying to sort of backfill that before mm. i would make any sort of overture to to be in direct relationship with them and there are lots of folks doing really good work who have actually sort of put themselves out as a um as a bridge between native and non-native folks and um I guess I would say let's um, lean into or, or or uplift that work before I would look to folks who have not said that, right? That makes sense. And I like that there's people out there who are already doing it and we can look to that because that leads to the next question of, how do we create the conditions to support others to do this work? So you've had some really privileged positions in this field, as have I, and I, I still take up a lot of these positions. And part of what I want to be doing is supporting others to do this work in a good way and building the right relationships and um, bringing the right truth to what well, that sounds funny bring bring a deep respect and understanding of the histories of the land to this work in a way that represents what work needs to be done in the future and so how do we as folks who've had these positions in working in this field for a long time how can we support others who may just be starting out uh, working with people and bring them out onto the land. Thank you. I think the most important thing for me is that 
is recognizing that I'm not doing this alone and I don't want anyone else to do it alone either. I want us to do it in, in community. I think this work needs the support of community. Um, and something that I haven't spoken about um, but feels important to me is the lineage that I was introduced, first introduced to nature connection work um, has a um, the lineage that I was introduced to came from folks who had relationship with indigenous peoples from both from North America and other parts of the world. And over time, endeavored to um, sort of universalize some of those practices and elements, stripping them of their cultural specificity which in, in my understanding is a, is, is a recipe for cultural misappropriation, incredibly harmful. A lot of the organizations and the people that I know today who are doing this work can trace their own history back to that particular lineage. And I'm not naming names here on purpose because I'm not sure that that's the point. It's a, it was a practice that happened throughout the world and over time where white-bodied folks took teachings, sometimes in appropriate right relationship with indigenous people and sometimes not. Um, but if that uh, uh, relationship and reciprocity wasn't there and those things were taken as I said, stripped of their cultural specificity and then offered for money to others, huge potential for harm. A um, friend of mine said, um, uh, reminded us that um, lineage is not permission and permission is not relationship. And I think that's really important. And what I want to say today is that there are folks, like you've said, who are who are just beginning this journey, maybe further along. But let's stay together and remind ourselves that we sort of drank from the same well, which we now understand to have been poisonous. I don't think that's too strong a word. Hmm. Do we want to pass that on? Un filtered and without remediation i don't and i don't i don't think others do either once they come to that understanding it's mm -hmm. not easy but if we can do it in a in a way that feels um supportive and familial not not sugarcoating but saying hey byron i know we share this lineage i'm going to work to undo the harmful bits and be in integrity with it going forward because I understand the potential and the need. It's absolutely essential for the next generations. If we're going to stop the symptoms of the sickness of separation, which I see war and genocide playing out right now, if we're going to stop that, we have to be able to build understanding of our interconnectedness with integrity not taking from other cultures not our own mm. cool i love how you highlight working together you know recognizing that we are we are working together we are components of complex ecosystems and we need to we need to interact like we are in relationship because we are in relationship and i think that that's that's good. Good thing to remember. Yeah, Lisa, is there anything else you wanted to to say or mention before we close this up? I want to say how grateful I am to you, Byron, for holding this space. And I'm sorry I didn't open with that. Um, and for this uh, invitation to to be a part of it. Yeah, may it continue. Thank you, Lisa. I feel like every time I talk to you. Formally or informally, I learned so much and I appreciate so much. And I'm just 
I know the listeners won't get to see this, but to watch your face as we talk and watch the light move across from your window across your face as you're telling good stories and sharing knowledge and expertise and wisdom that you've accumulated uh, through shared stories, probably through a lot of heartbreak along the way and, and a lot of good lessons. So thank you so much for sharing those lessons. It's been a good time to talk to you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Byron. Again, big thanks to Lisa Donahue for taking the time to let me ask those questions, for sharing good stories and experience. I'll be asking a lot of people these questions over the next few weeks, trying to learn more about how we can get folks out on the land and thinking about the land in different kinds of ways, thinking about our relationships with the land and thinking about how do we develop anti-racist, decolonial relationships that are rooted in, in what Lisa was talking about, in truth, in reconciliation. And I mean that in, in deep and substantial ways. Um, how do we do this with the work that we do? This is the work that I've dedicated my life to especially right now and I want to know how to do this better and I'm so grateful for all these voices that I'm going to get the chance to or I have already spoken to who've offered so much guidance on how to do this in a good way and big thanks for Lisa for that I, I really appreciate talking to her every time I do she's so wise so good <laughs> yeah fills my heart uh, thank you all for listening to the show. If you want to learn more about the show, please email me. Or, pardon me, if, yeah, if you want to know more about the show, you can email me to knowtheland at gmail.com. You can check out the website, www.tonowtheland.com. Hit me up on Instagram at tonowtheland. And ask any questions, offer any feedback, any critiques. I want to hear more. I love when people challenge things that I have to say or have ideas. It's so good. I love that dialogue. It's, let's keep it healthful and like helpful and towards a growth kind of, I hate this idea, but a growth mindset maybe is a simple way. Like I'm here to learn. So please, if you have something to offer, I want to learn. If you want to support the show, you can always go to www.tonowtheland.com forward slash donate there's a paypal account and a patreon account everything helps thank you to cheryl who made a donation this month i appreciate that helps keep this show going i i, I really appreciate it i think that's it yeah that's it take care <laughs>